Welcome to Securiosity for November 15th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. North Korea tried to hack banks, Cyber Command caught them, and put their malware out in the open. And we wrote a story about it. The world keeps spinning along, and we'll give you all the details. In our interview, we talk with Murad Yassim, Managing Director of Paladin Capital Group. He's an investment lead for the firm Cyber Fund, and we'll get into a discussion on where the money's flowing. And it will be a perfect discussion because there was a flurry of deals this week, raises, M&A. There was a bunch of stuff going on. We will get to all of it. But first, let's talk about that North Korean malware. The Department of Defense has again exposed North Korean hackers by detailing malware samples researchers say are linked to financial heist, including past attacks on the interbank messaging system known as SWIFT. Cyber Command assessed that the malware, which it posted to VirusTotal, is being used in ongoing cyber attacks aimed at the financial sector. It's a rare statement from the Pentagon's Cyber Operations Division on the intent and capabilities of adversary-linked malware in what appears to be an expansion of the command's willingness and ability to discuss intelligence behind its VirusTotal effort. Greg, looks like there wasn't anything held up this time around. Yeah. Um, Instead of being a diplomatic pawn, we now see just what a standard effort (laughs) looks like. Uh, I mean, like we said in the intro, this is kind of par for the course. North Korea wants to try to hack into the banking system because the sanctions have just crippled them on any sort of legal front when it comes to any sort of trade or making money or anything like that. So. They're going to try to get into the SWIFT system, steal money, uh, and uh, Cyber Command is clearly very aware that that's what North Korea wants to do. So they're going to take all the malware that they find related to that, put it up on Virus Total, and turn around and say, hey, we see you. Please stop it. How pissed are they that their malware got put up? Um, I mean, it's very clear that this must be working because this is now, I I think, the fourth or fifth instance in which we've talked about this. So um, we haven't seen anything that's been linked to any other adversary that we know of. There's, I I can't remember anything that's been really tied to an APT from Russia or China or Iran or anybody else. This seems this program for now seems to be just to stick a thumb in the eye of North Korean hackers. Which, I mean, hey, that that I, I think that's a perfectly good reason for the U.S. government to stand up a program. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's clearly working, and it's also interesting because uh, this is also I think a good example of information sharing starting to get better within uh, the government, not and not only within the government but between the government and the private sector because privately the FBI also flagged this malware and sent out uh, an alert. Uh, that they do through their uh, alert system and, you know, send it out uh, to all the uh, private companies that subscribe to that, these TLPs. Uh, We obtained that and saw that that went out as well. So it's clear that there's something that is uh, a little more coordinated than just, hey, we're going to, you know, pin this device total and stick a finger in their eye. No, there's actually some, like, coordinated whole-of-government efforts that are actually going on, which... You know, we go to these conferences around town and we hear that all the time. There, goes, yeah, 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 that's not what really happens. And, well, no, it turns out that, you know, actually, maybe it is actually starting to happen more and more now that the FBI, DHS, NSA are all on the same page and have a coordinated effort on how to defeat some of this stuff. Which is amazing and how it should be. So declaring privacy a fundamental human right, Microsoft said on Monday it would apply the privacy measures in a California law across the country. 
Julie Brill, a former FTC commissioner who is now chief privacy officer at Microsoft, cast the announcement as a push for other states to adopt similar measures. The California Consumer Privacy Act, set to take effect in January, gives state residents the right to know the personal data companies are collecting on them. It also doesn't hurt that Microsoft collects less user data than other social media companies. Jen, this just seems like it's a smart move, right? It does. You know, I I would assume that every state is eventually going to to put in law what California has. Um, And I think these big companies are going to just start doing this for all. Well, I also think while we could debate the merits company by company of whether they really quote unquote care about uh, privacy, I think that this just from a business standpoint is something smart because we've talked about the the patchwork of state privacy laws across the country where it's easier for companies to just say, okay, if we're not going to have a federal law, let's just apply this everywhere. And if we have to, you know, reform and, and sort of work away around some other things in the time being fine. But at the same time, if this is going to be the strongest law in the books, then let's just operate by the the strongest measure and cut down on, you know, all of the headaches that come with trying to adhere to 48 different laws. Like, it's just smart business. It is smart business. You should definitely adhere to the, the strictest rules. And I think that that's what a lot of companies are doing with GDPR, too, because even though GDPR is only for European uh is only for European users, companies are just going, we're, we're just going to put this across the world because it's just easier for us to, to get our ducks in a row that way instead of having to worry about what's going on in the Philippines or Brazil mm-hmm. or Nigeria or the Emirates or wherever we are if, if you're a multinational. So I, I, I think that this is just the way that it has to be. Otherwise, you're just going to drown in regulation and no company wants to do that. No, they don't. So the United Kingdom's Labor Party on Tuesday said it has fended off a large-scale DDoS attack, but also warned the attack could portend more digital mischief ahead of general election next month. Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn called the attack very serious and said an investigation was ongoing. It was not immediately clear who was responsible for the attack. Election officials around the world will have to be mindful of DDoS attacks as they look to keep digital platforms that inform voters online. Greg, there seems a controversy around this attack description, right? Yeah. uh, When this was announced on Monday, the Labor Party in the UK described it as a very large and very sophisticated cyber attack, and it turned out to be a large-scale DDoS attack. A large-scale DDoS attack, while it might be large, it is not sophisticated. I mean, you and I could Google DDoS booter in 15 seconds, dump a bunch of Bitcoin into it, and, and point that canon of junk traffic anywhere that we wanted to that's not sophisticated you and i are not hackers, hackers. You're yeah. for me, uh, which, which <laughs> would be totally interesting but at the same time i doubt that's the case and yeah if you and i and and anybody else if we could teach somebody to do that and we could we could teach somebody to do that it's as easy as going on to amazon and instead of buying i don't know you know prime video you can by junk traffic to send at a website. It's not sophisticated. So it, the controversy is around basically how much we use that word sophisticated because if you start to describe every cyber attack as sophisticated, yep. none of the attacks 
are sophisticated. So like talking about like Stuxnet or the stuff that we talk about when it comes to like the power grid or ICS security, that stuff is pretty sophisticated. This is not sophisticated. 14 year olds that have an interest in computers can, can do, do this. this. So yeah. it just goes to show that there's still a long way to go for the general populace to understand how all of this works, but pointing a junk traffic cannon at Labor Party websites is not and will never be sophisticated. But look, they should take it seriously, right? It's important that we right. figure out how to block right. all just of because, this stuff. Yeah. Just because it's not sophisticated doesn't mean that it shouldn't be taken seriously. But you can, I mean, this is what Cloudflare does. Cloudflare has products that can guard against this. Other companies uh, and other bigger companies, like if you're running Amazon Web Services or Azure or anything like that, uh, Google also has ways to block this traffic. So, yes, that's where it should be taken seriously, where if you don't have protection for it, whether it's UK, US, whatever, you absolutely should. Mm-hmm. Because it's it where the danger is is how easy it is to launch attacks like this. And it gets back to the sophisticated thing. It's not sophisticated. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. So Alexei Burkoff was in the Eastern District Court of Virginia to face allegations including the sale of stolen credit card information, identity theft, and money laundering. The Russian hacker's presence in court represented a victory for U.S. officials who convinced Israeli judges to send Burkoff to the U.S. rather than back to his home country. Burkoff allegedly operated a website called Card Planet, where scammers could buy and sell information on more than 150,000 credit cards. The Kremlin filed its own extradition request for Burkoff, and then while courts there debated whether to send the young man home or to the U.S., there was an Israeli woman that was detained on drug charges, and she became a pawn in some Russian diplomatic affairs. But nonetheless, Burkoff was extradited this week and sent to Alexandria. Uh, Jen, uh, another Russian uh, criminal extradited. We're doing all this again. Shocking. I We're going to be talking about this probably every month at this point. Yeah, um, it's clear that the efforts will be made to extradite any and all hackers. Obviously, there are thousands that the DOJ would love to extradite, so I don't think we're necessarily going to have like a plane a day or something like that. But at the same time, it, it's amazing plane that it even day. could be a plane a day with with a cyber yeah. criminal. Um, yeah, uh, this was it was a really interesting case in how Russia likes to protect their hackers by uh, any means necessary when it comes to diplomatic affairs, because this is uh, reminiscent of what happened with uh, Evgeny Nikulin, the the guy who is allegedly responsible for hacking LinkedIn and a bunch of other big U.S. sites. The Russians did the same thing. They fought and fought and fought and fought, and they even sent some diplomats to go talk to him. We've covered it extensively Mm -hmm. on CyberScoop, and it's really interesting. This is – they really do protect – their own even if they're criminals it's just really uh, astounding to see i don't think that you'd see that in a lot of other places especially when it's the u.s like bearing down to be like okay they've committed crimes they need to face a courtroom in the u.s i mean it hackers are important to russia right i mean it's one of their their big businesses in government um to hack and get into everything else. So it makes sense to me that they want him home and not Absolutely. Um, in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, other than obviously those employed by the government, I, it would be interesting to see if there was like a case that was flipped. Like there was some 
script kitty or something like that that wrecked V contact or something like that and Russia was like, no, we need this guy extradited. I don't think that we would see that. I actually don't. I, don't I think, think the would. U.S. would be like, eh, you know what? Pass. So the Fifth Grid Acts, a large-scale cybersecurity drill hosted by North American power relators, will focus more than ever on supply chain threats and have greater participation from smaller power providers that are often the soft underbelly of grid security. Exercise planners and participants say they understand that the threats facing grid operators and are watching as the sector's security matures. In the last four years, hackers have cut power for hundreds of thousands of people in the Ukraine and caused a petrochemical plant to shut down in Saudi Arabia. GridX is part of the U.S. power company's preparation to keep those types of attacks from hitting them at home. Greg, let's talk more about this exercise. Yeah, um, these companies are really expecting the people running this test to throw the kitchen sink at them. Good. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking digital stuff, physical stuff. Like, this is like a large-scale pen testing exercise, and this, you know, needs to happen more and more, uh, and it's coming into focus more and more for these power companies because if you read our story, uh, a lot of the executives that are involved have said, okay, uh, like, I understand how important this is, and we need to go figure out where my holes are because I need to protect them. You don't hear that a lot from CEOs still. You right. just You just don't. Um, I mean, there was a really interesting story from uh, a pen tester in in Sean's story where he talked about that an executive just – an executive walked up to a pen tester and was like, go break my stuff. Most CEOs don't even know what a pen tester is. Yep. So w- when you know uh, a white hat hacker – is approached by the CEO of an oil gas company and says, break into the control system environment and tell us what physical effects you might be able to cause. That's that's a win. And it's it's a win that more and more of these executives realize uh, the, the real danger here and that they're all on board to just be like, okay, give us your worst and let's figure it out now before uh, there's some type of loss of life or something that is actually catastrophic. I mean, I still think this is one of the more scary um, use cases for hackers, right? I mean, it it's one of the things that could keep me up at night is, is hacking into our critical infrastructure. Yeah, a- absolutely. The uh, hacking critical infrastructure is really the, the most dangerous thing that, that we write about on, on a daily basis. For sure. So, um, Definitely good to see these tests and see that the spotlight on these companies and these companies responding and go, okay, we see the spotlight. Give us your worst and then we'll go fix it if we have to fix anything at all. Hackers have been impersonating the United States Postal Service and tax entities in recent weeks to get victims in the U.S., Italy, and Germany to download and install malware, according to new research from Proofpoint. The scheme involves tricking people into clicking through spear phishing emails that contain ransomware and sometimes banking trojans by sending alerts that appear to require urgent action related to tax information. Of course, what's really taking place is a money-making ploy, according to Proofpoint researchers. It's unclear whether it's being carried out by one person or a group, but there are some clues in the attacker's infrastructure, says Proofpoint Threat Intelligence lead Christopher Dawson. Jen, the best advice here is something we've said forever. If it looks like a weird email, don't click on the link. Yeah, you know, people still get scared um, when they're accused of tax fraud or tax evasion um, and they send money and it's just absolutely amazing that we're still 
doing this despite how often it's in the news yeah um well to be fair i imagine that the people that they're targeting have no idea that cyber scoop is a thing or even that cybersecurity is a thing they and know that <laughs> the, the the irs does not send email correspondence and you know everything that makes this scheme come together if if you know you're obviously not going to worry about right. that at, at the same time i would imagine that there are you know, it, it's this looks to me like one of these like prey and spray type attacks where it's just okay. The, maybe the malware in the attack has some sophistication to it, and it looks like nation state stuff. But the means by which the targets are found, it's just okay. Here's an email database that we found. Let's just send it out there, and what we get back, we get back, and we'll poke around on what it is. And it works because it still happens. Still works. So it works. Yep, still works. I'm sure we'll be writing another one of these stories next month, two months, six months, whatever. As long as spear phishing easily works, these stories will exist. I still haven't gotten this um, email yet from the U.S. Postal Office. I've I've gotten the um, the IRS phone calls. Well, over yeah, and over you know, again, yeah, the robocalls. Right. No, nothing. Yet. Yeah, nothing from the postal service yet. I. If I got any email from the Postal Service, I don't think I would click on it because if it's not a tracking email to, for a package, I, I, I don't need to um, interact with the Postal Service via email at all for anything. So. <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing at all. So Microsoft just pushed out security update for a vulnerability in Excel that could allow hackers to install new programs or change or delete data. All kinds of hackers have exploited Microsoft Office products that users inherently trust to slip their malicious code into machines. In April, security researchers documented how a Russian group targeted embassies around the world with malicious Excel files. Anytime we see code execution issues in widespread products like Office products, we have concerns due to the ease of forwarding exploits to unsuspecting victims, said Craig Williams, director of outreach at Talos, um, to CyberScoop. Greg, I'm kind of surprised this doesn't happen more often. Who doesn't use Excel? Everybody does. I hate using Excel, and even I use Excel, and I'm not doing deep data science, or I'm not an accountant, and uh, I'm I'm in Excel daily. Mm -hmm. So this is something that is, you know, something everybody should pay attention to. If you have Excel, which is just about every office computer that I can think of, well, you should be checking your versions and making sure that you have Excel patches out there because, Tur, are you probably going to be attacked via this method? No. Is it possible for you to be attacked via this method? Yes. Yes. So patch your stuff. Patch your stuff. Um, yeah, I'm actually surprised it doesn't happen more either because everybody uses Excel. I would almost say that people use Excel more than they use Word. Oh, for and sure. And we talk about Word macros that are laced with malware all the time. Absolutely all the time. I'm really surprised that we don't talk about Excel being weaponized more than we talk about Microsoft Word being weaponized. There's just so many alternatives to Microsoft Word. I mean, even like your notes app on your phone. So right. Excel, there's just really not anything that's It's Excel as and good. Google Sheets, I guess. Yeah. That's and, it. And that's not, just not as good. Right. So on the business side of things this week, starting on the smaller side and working our way up. CISIS, a, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a Tel Aviv Israel-based cybersecurity risk validation startup completed a $10 million Series A funding round. The round was led by AWZ Ventures with participation from Blackstone. Hopefully they can buy a vow with that money. Cybrary, <laughs> a Greenbelt, Maryland-based 
online cybersecurity career development platform. We've talked about Cyberary before here. Uh, raised $50 million in Series B funding. Build Group led the round and was joined by investors including Arthur Ventures and our boy Ron Gula over Woo! at Gula Tech. The huge round this week, One Password, the Toronto-based password manager, raised $200 million in a Series A funding. The round was led by Excel and joined by Slack Fund, Altassian executives, and other investors. And then the big acquisition this week, OpenText, another Canada-based company, acquired Carbonite, who provides cloud-based subscription, data protection, backup, disaster recovery, and endpoint security to small and medium businesses. That deal was $1.42 billion. OpenText hands over to Carbonite, inclusive of Carbonite's cash and debt. Webroot was part of Carbonite. We talked about that acquisition before. So OpenText now owns Webroot as well. Jen, lots of stuff to talk about. But one thing I, I have to focus on, have you ever seen a funding round bigger, $200 million for a Series A? No, I haven't seen anything bigger. That's incredible. That is incredible. Um, and I'm actually surprised it wasn't venture-backed before. It's actually something I use. Yeah, that's um, what really surprises me. I would figure that... If you would have asked me two days ago before this was news, if one password, like where were they at, I, I would have said that they're probably late stage at this point because they are everywhere and they are ubiquitous. And I would have figured that they would have had multiple funds of rounding and they would have gone through the Series A, B, C like a while ago. Oh, like, yeah. I, I would have never guessed that they were at, at Series A and that they would get $200 million for a Series A. I mean, that that yeah, I, I don't remember ever seeing a cybersecurity company valued like that before. I mean, I will say that I have no idea about the financing history at all about this company. Um, my words, Ben, but it is based in Canada, and Canada tends to, from the government perspective, put a lot of money into companies. Um, you know, they I looked at a company in Canada last year, um, and the government had put like twenty two million bucks um, into the Quantum Dot company. Okay, um, you know pre anything right so okay. i can see that there may be like some serious government money in this company but again i have no idea i haven't looked into it um i've got pitch book open looking at it but there's nothing there so maybe this is truly a first round and it was bootstrapped yeah that would that hey uh, and you know what it, maybe it was and that wouldn't be surprising to me because they do have a, a good product they have a great product i i know tons of people that that use this and i think this was the first password manager that i even ever heard of yeah so um yeah i i would imagine that that might be the case interesting i definitely want to look into that uh, a little bit more now but yeah uh really really uh, amazing round of funding there and good for them and cyberary too i mean i think this is now like the third training platform in six weeks that we've yeah. been talking about getting raises so it's clear that there's this influx needed to get these training companies off the ground and i mean it goes through what we've talked about forever with the cybersecurity workforce shortage that okay let's try to fix that shortage let's mm -hmm. get some people some more skills and here are the platforms to do it whether it's circadence cybrary immersive labs and we'll talk to uh some people from immersive labs soon um yeah some really interesting stuff going on with regards to uh training and the money behind it yeah absolutely um and then another hop out of security um companies is 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 Tel Aviv, right? And so we see a company coming out of there with a Series A. So it's sort of interesting. Waterloo also 
um, a hotbed for um, innovative security companies. Uh, Tel Aviv, the the 8200 guys. I mean, they know they it, it kind of mirrors what happens here uh, with the NSA. The NSA has elite talent. They know what they're doing. Yep. They leave the NSA and go try to start their own companies. Very similar in Tel Aviv. They spend their time in 8200, leave 8200, go off and spin off their own companies based on uh, their knowledge base that they got from inside the military. So, yeah. Uh, Tel Aviv, yeah, from a funding standpoint, been around forever, I feel mm-hmm. like, on the block of, like, known yep. cities where uh, tech companies have been forged and clearly not stopping. So now to our interview with Murad. Uh, we'll just continue the conversation that we've been having right now. Uh, Murad uh, works for Paladin Capital, Managing Director Leads investment for the cyber fund. So uh, I'm sure Murad will tell us all about what he's looking for in terms of companies, what he's seen from the raises that we've talked about, and a whole bunch more. Check it out. Joining us now is Murad Yasein, Managing Director at Paladin Capital Group, and also, as we just learned, a Neighbor to Scoop News Group actually works around the block from us. So welcome, Neighbor. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about what interested you in cybersecurity and what Paladin does. Sure. Absolutely. So um, I sort of fell backwards actually into, um, you know, venture capital. I'm I'm a finance guy by background, Uh, came to DC almost 11 years ago when I joined um, Paladin. And uh, Paladin since the start has, um, since 2001, um, has had a number of practice areas, but, but always has been very centrally focused at um, national security investment themes um, and kind of operating at that intersection point of the commercial markets where the solutions are needed and the government where there's um, both a real understanding of how the threat landscape is evolving and um, and a lot of R&D being poured into kind of emerging problems. And so it's a really unique perspective of kind of understanding um, cyber threats, which um, over the last you know decade or more obviously have been uh, ever growing and um, kind of seeing it through the lens of how we intersect with um, our insight into government with some of the people we have around the firm. Um, you know, the government is kind of at the forefront of you know the most sophisticated um, threats kind of among and between nation states. And then those will not necessarily just go away. Those commoditize and become the commercial sector's problem. So um, I thought that was a really interesting lens that the firm had. And originally when I started the firm, I um, was more of a generalist, you know, working in a number of different practice areas that we had, but uh, both just kind of following the growth of the market and continue to focus on what we've done best in. Um, Cybersecurity for us has been um, our single biggest and strongest practice area. Um, And so while I'm not really a a sort of technology guy by by background, um, actually my background in finance and kind of risk management uh, in the past um, has been a good, I think, background to bring into, um, you know, the discipline, because at the end of the day, there isn't really, quote, a solution to, we're just going to solve cybersecurity, and there's not going to be any problems anymore. Um, You know, we're never going to be 100% secure. So it is kind of a risk management exercise. So as kind of the finance person like that angle of it really, um, you know, appealed to me. And that's kind of how I've approached looking at the market. Paladin is an investor in one of our favorite founder guests, Aaron Higby of CoFence, and you're also an investor in Expel. Walk us through the case study of Expel, how you found them, what was compelling about their technology, the market, the founding team, and how you have helped them grow. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we're so we're an early stage investor. Just, just for background, you know, so we um, have flexibility to invest across any stage. But really, what we focus on is first institutional capital, um, Series A, uh, maybe even earlier. And in in the market, we kind of like to be um, thesis driven uh, or thematic. There's a couple of broad buckets that breaks down into one. There's always kind of new categories being created in security because security isn't just one monolithic thing it's 30 different things and um you know there's uh categories like um you know email phishing awareness security awareness training for example like the cofence uh story which you know that wasn't a thing uh before in 2012 so there's new categories like that that we um try to uh, find innovation in and back you know great teams and, and products uh uh, uh, to uh, to help them grow. Then the second category, which is where Expel fits, is kind of these existing markets that are existing big budget line items that are dominated by some of the big incumbents that haven't really innovated for about a decade. So there's uh, a lot of these areas, and, and sometimes I think startups are maybe um, you know afraid to tackle that, but the good news in those situations is you have an existing multi-billion dollar market Often, which is growing. So, so from a from a thesis perspective, one of the areas we looked at was managed security services. Most companies don't have security as a core competency, so they're going to look to partner with um, with third parties to outsource that. And and obviously, we we all know about the talent shortage and and all that stuff. Um, so so there was that aspect of it. But then what we also saw was a, a an opportunity to um, find a company that was really taking a more technology-driven approach and really kind of bringing in um, you know, better automation and, and really being able to kind of lift up the, the client experience from sort of the traditional MSSP model, which is you know, here's a pile of alerts for you that you can access through this dashboard and it's kind of a black box of how we came up with it versus how about if we sort of tune the analytics engine to give you the most relevant things and really compress the noise for you and also make our platform totally transparent so we're not trying to unseat or replace your security team because you've made investments there, but we're going to work with you and kind of help you get better and you see what our analysts see and so on. So that was basically the thesis behind um, Expel. Now, we sort of come up with the part of kind of looking for the innovation and working with our network to, to meet founders. Um, and so what we find is that if we've had a thesis and we've looked at a market space for a long period of time, hopefully when we meet the right team, and you know, we met, met uh, Dave Merkel and, and his team uh, back in early 2016, I think our first meeting was in a, in a bar where all great uh, stories begin. Uh, and so, um, so, so we were finding like we were finishing each other's sentences because we'd spent so much time looking at that space and they were kind of looking at it the same way we were. So I think for us what's really important is kind of having that meeting of the minds on a space that we've really studied, we have a strong view on in terms of what is lacking in the market, and then finding a really strong team that can kind of help um, you know, execute on the product side and, and has a great vision. So uh, we led their Series A in 2016. Um, you know, the things that we do, any helped any company grow, in, including them, I mean, really we look at it as we're gonna help you find customers, you know, early adopters, uh, partners, we're gonna help with recruiting talent. And a lot of what our companies actually really benefit from is that um, because we've made you know 35 plus investments um, in this sector over the last decade, um, we just have a lot of lessons learned from that, right? We have a lot of best practices and, and knowledge and seeing that movie from going from 
pre-revenue to your first 10 million revenue and then you know hopefully to like 100 million revenue or more and and exiting um, via M&A or, or IPO. So we've seen um, everything that has worked and not worked. It doesn't mean we know everything, but um, we can kind of help bring that to the table in terms of those experiences, uh, which I think for an early stage company really um, is helpful to them. Um, so that's in a nutshell kind of how we found it, you know, why why we kind of like working together. I think a lot of times it's, you know, um, you know, money from an investment standpoint is a commodity. I think you have to find something where both the investor feels like they can really add value that they have real conviction about because they've really studied it and the founders can kind of see that and feel that hopefully. Um, and so they decide that, you know, mutually kind of decide that it's a good partnership and it's it's been playing out great. So speaking of things that don't work, um, the three of us were all out over the summer at Black Hat walking around the showroom floor and we're gearing up um, to go to San Francisco to walk around RSA. There's just so many companies on the showroom floor. What are you kind of tired of seeing? What industry sectors do you think are sort of just saturated already? Yeah. Um, well, I won't get too specific so that we don't, uh, <laughs> don't, name company we names. don't want to negatively <laughs> impact uh, companies <laughs> reaching out to us. Um, I think certainly, so there, I have a couple of views on that. One, I think that the, the biggest problem I see with startups is that I think they overestimate the maturity of the customer. And so you have uh, the market kind of oversupplied with solutions that will appeal to only the highest end kind of bleeding edge uh, customers who... Uh, truly do need to be investing in that kind of innovation and those kind of capabilities. But then that cre th those purchases by those enterprises might create this signal that suggests that there's validation that this is perhaps going to be something broader market. And then, um, you know, I think that's the biggest reason why there's companies that they're, they're good teams, they have a great technology, they get traction, they get funding, but, you know, how, how broad can they really go, you know, how big can they really get? So, I think that's part of the the challenge. Um, you know, I think, for example, the endpoint market in which we actually had an investment with Endgame, which was a very successful recent exit. Um, you know, that was a very crowded market. Um, but part of it is also the demand signal that the enterprises are sending. Where if you actually thought about it as um, okay, and a large enterprise is going to adopt one of these vendors and it's a zero sum game, it's, it's actually not. What we when we talked to large enterprise CISOs, they said, yeah, well, we've you know implemented Endgame and Carbon Black and CrowdStrike because we get some different value out of each of them. And so when you actually look at it that way, the market is actually a little bit bigger than you think uh, because the, um, the enterprise is not buying one, they might be buying three. Now, is that sustainable? Is that gonna continue? Everybody talks about, well, there's eventually gonna be consolidation. But I think the reality is that there is a huge amount of demand signal coming from large enterprise because they do want to continue trying new things. And that's then kind of creating this large volume of um, startups in certain categories, not really not, at least for a good reason, I think, but um, obviously going to be difficult um, for uh, categories that might have two or three dozen companies mm -hmm. for all of them to win, right? The market's not just going to be not quite big enough. How about things you're excited about saying? You mentioned, you know, you put thesis together on how you yeah. think the market's gonna go. Is there anything you wanna see more of? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of uh, ways that I look at that. One, I think the area that's been a bit underserved um, where we've done a lot of investing and will continue to do it is companies that are really doing a good job tying um, security into business process and the people side of the problem. 
Um, so we've done a lot of investing under kind of the human element piece, so to mm -hmm. speak. Cofence is a great example of that. You'll see other companies in our portfolio that are focused on uh, not just, for example, the end user, but what about software developers? How do we upskill them? Um, how do we upskill existing, you know, IT professionals? Um, because there's yes, there's a talent problem, but a, a talent problem means there's also a skill gap, right? So how do we bring um, better um, skills at scale to who we already have uh, in the company. And then the business process side, what I mean by that is kind of helping translate and understand um, security for the business side, for the board, for executives. Um, you know, there's, there's not as much of that in terms of drawing some insights and making better decisions from a business standpoint because um, you're you're not going to solve companies aren't going to solve this problem just with technology right so you're going to need to figure out how does it integrate with the business process side and the people side um, and for us as an investor what we like about some of those themes is it takes us into some other budget categories of the enterprise right so we don't want 20 companies in our portfolio all having to only go through the CISO to have a value proposition, mm -hmm. right? We want to have companies that have a value proposition to the CFO or the general counsel or the chief risk officer or even perhaps a, a business unit. Um, but in terms of new categories, I think increasingly we're always looking at things that are not no longer kind of IT. So whether that's um, you know IoT or autonomous vehicles or anything that's non-traditional IT, um, you know security has to be uh, kind of embedded in those. So you'll see uh, examples of that in, in our work um, and really looking kind of at areas like um, AI and security and trust of AI. So how do you know that your AI systems are behaving and doing what you expect them to do? Is there is there bias in them that could create legal risks in terms of how you're analyzing mortgage applications? So anywhere where we're automating away um, you know, human judgment and replacing it with the judgment of a system, you know, how do we validate that that's still doing what we think it's doing and it isn't being, and it perhaps isn't vulnerable to um, an adversarial, you know, methodology. So I think there's an interesting group of early stage companies in that category. Um, and then more kind of on the, you know, more harder core technology side, I think uh, we see serverless as a big uh, computing trend. Um, kind of the next wave, if you will, sort of uh, post containers. I mean, containers are still new, but I mean, we're as an as an early stage investor, we're we're looking to invest in things that are perhaps not at the top of the list of of problems today, but we think they're going to be major issues within a couple of years. So, through that lens, those are some of the areas that we think are interesting. So we're still seeing a lot of security startups getting funded and valuations still seem to be uh, inflated. Do you think that we're in a cyber bubble or do you think that consolidation is going to come? Because we talk about the carbon blacks and the crowd strikes and the Palo Altos and how everybody is trying to gobble up companies in order to be everything to everyone. So what do you see moving forward? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I think that there, I guess the promising thing is that I've, I've been, I think the whole industry has been thinking about this question for a long time now. So maybe that means if we're sort of responsibly thinking about it, maybe it's not as um, frothy as it seems. Certainly, I think what's happening is that there's, um, there's premiums being paid for quality assets, and certainly consolidation is, is, is increasing. A lot of the um, you know, traditional or, I guess, legacy cybersecurity vendors, if you can call them that, 
Um, you know, they need to add to their portfolios in cloud, for example, like Palo Alto has done. You know, if you're a, a network security appliance vendor, it makes sense that you want to build a strong, you know, cloud portfolio. Um, so I think some of that is just logical by way of, um, you know, this is a very specialized industry. And I think they're actually smart if you're a VMware or Palo Alto and you want to kind of move into these other areas, it's probably better to acquire because you really need those those teams and that talent. You probably shouldn't think that you can just build it organically. Um, and so sure, valuations are um, are at premium levels to where they were historically. Um, you know, we're in a low capital cost environment. I mean, I think that's, that's no surprise. Um, but I think that the companies, the acquirers that are paying premiums, and I think even investors that are paying premiums, I think if the underlying asset it still has high quality in terms of the metrics, the team, the technology. Um, I think those are still going to be successful investments. And yeah, your rate of return won't be what it was, um, you know, five years ago or ten years ago. But that's also because you know we have you know, near zero, um, you know, interest rates and and so on. So um, I think where you'll see more um, difficulty is uh, when capital rushes in into. Um, into assets that are perhaps, um, you know, not kind of the, the more upper tier, um, you know, companies. Um, there's obviously a lot of capital coming in from a venture perspective, um, from firms that are maybe just entering this market and, and, and uh, haven't been in it for a long time. So I think those are going to be riskier than they look. Um, and I think as in every cycle, then you'll see, um, you know, some of those not do very well. But um, you know, I, I think the future is still pretty bright. There's still problems emerging. We still need to create new companies tackling new problems. So you still need innovation in this sector because it's kind of an evergreen problem, right? So like I said at the beginning, like you're not going to get um, you're not going to get rid of the, the the cybersecurity problem with a silver bullet. Um, so you know the, the the cycle I think will continue in terms of innovation and consolidation. And yeah, I mean valuation levels will probably ebb and flow. Very difficult to predict when that happens. I think that's going to be more of a macro story, not a sector-specific okay. story. Yeah. So we like to end this interview on a random question, okay. not related to cybersecurity. So if you woke up tomorrow and you became a consumer investor, what product would you immediately go fund or create? To fund. I mean, I think I would probably get into something kind of virtual reality, augmented reality related. Um, you know, that's that's kind of been super intriguing to me. Um, and, um, you know, kind of um, uh, dabbling in something like that would be would be pretty interesting. I don't know anything about it. Um, so I don't have like a specific um, sort, of, sort of idea around. Um, or even a use case that you would want to use it for. Um, I think it would be, um, well, it would, I mean, it would definitely be around gaming because from what I do now, like I, so I used to be a huge, uh, gamer before I had, you know, real responsibilities and, and, uh, <laughs> you and, can still be and one. I'm, I'm still one and I have right. And so I think, I think what I would do is I would just get back into that. And so okay. that would, consumer tech investing would be my great excuse to get back into gaming. So, What's your favorite video game? Um, so I was huge, uh, huge Halo player. Okay. Yeah. Even starting with the PC edition. Wow. Okay. Play, yeah. So like that's, uh, uh, that's my, that's my jam. Are you geared up for the show? Sorry? Are you geared up for the show? Halo's going to be like an actual like scripted drama. I uh, see. I'm like, so like, detached oh, from wow. no, okay. I didn't even know. I'm going to have wow, to look into there that. There you go. Breaking news for you. <laughs> I there. know. Um, yeah. No, great. Poor Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Marad, really appreciate you jumping aboard. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. 
Thanks again to Murad for joining us. And Jen, kicking back and playing video games sounds a lot better than cybersecurity investing, but I imagine cybersecurity investing would lead to a lot more money than kicking back and playing video games. Yeah, I'm guessing there's not a lot of money in that. Well, I mean, really, really good. Or yeah, look at esports. Uh, there's still esports too. So maybe when well, he's done with the cybersecurity stuff, he can turn around and invest in that. I mean, I guess I did have a company um, come in and pitch me, and I was shocked by the revenue number for basically allowing access to videos of, of professionals playing video games. So it's, it's that is an entirely different market that I am fascinated with, and all, almost surprised that it like equals the amount of money that's going into cybersecurity and yet it, it's like wh what are we all doing this for again it's weird <laughs> anyway with that we will wrap it up this week thank you again for listening as always stay curious stay curious